We continue to share interviews from the COVID-19 and oil price war forum that Jay Minsmeyer and the Value Investors Edge team hosted in March 2020 on the Investing Edge channel. From the standpoint of three weeks on, we have some perspective on the broader market depth, but as Jay said to me, the setup for shipping has never been more of a tale of best of times and worst of times. This discussion features Jay talking to Euronav CEO Hugo Destoup, whose oil tankers are facing a very promising setup. To check out all of the 15 interviews that Jay conducted as part of the COVID forum, as well as transcripts, real-time discussion, and exclusive ideas, you can sign up for Value Investors Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace. A two-week free trial is available. You just need to go to seekingalpha.com marketplace and search for Jay Minsmeyer or Value Investors Edge. You can also do that from anywhere on Seeking Alpha. You need to do that on your computer or using the mobile browser. Okay, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the next iteration of our live virtual investor forum focusing on the coronavirus and the recent oil price war. It is the morning of 18 March 2020, recording at about 8.30 Eastern Time. Today, we're hosting Euronav CEO Hugo Destoup, who's going to talk to us about the crude tanker markets, oil price war, and any impacts from coronavirus. Before we begin, I may have long positions in relevant crude tanker stocks, no current position in Euronav. Nothing here today constitutes investment advice in any form or official company guidance from Euronav. Hugo, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. As we begin, we'll, we'll start with the broad uh, topics first and then narrow down a little bit into more specifics uh, regarding Euronav and capital allocation. Um, first off, uh, 2020 you know, started off in, on a strong note right? for crude tanker markets. Rates were surging. Uh, everyone was bullish about the uh, IMO 2020 transitions. Then we got hit with this huge black swan, uh, the coronavirus issues. Can you briefly describe how that impacted uh, your markets and how Euronav has responded to that? I mean, very clearly, I mean, the, the entire world is impacted by uh, the coronavirus and, and you saw the rates, uh, in fact, uh, their highs in, uh, in January. Uh, and it was a combination of uh, the first uh, news about coronavirus, but also the release of the Costco ship. So it's a little bit difficult for us to see uh, which was. Uh, uh, but in the meantime, um, I suppose that we are being affected as, um, as everyone uh, as everyone was, i.e. Uh, we got uh, uh, to reorganize the office uh, on board the ships. Uh, we also need to reorganize as a crew disembarkation and embarkation is a little bit more complicated than usual. Um, but quite frankly, we are um, we are a business that, that can um, that can do that. It's relatively easy to work uh, from home for most of us, and, and obviously on board the vessels, then people are <laughs> contained to the the 25 uh, people that are regularly regularly uh, on board. Um, I think what uh, what we're seeing now is, uh, in other words, the, the high rates that we're seeing now uh, have very little to do with coronavirus and much more to do uh, with the, the, the oil uh, price war. Uh, but of course, that has uh, an impact, and I suppose we'll discuss it later. And, and the impact is that on the consumption side, um, we have seen a, a relatively big decrease of consumption of oil uh, and at the same time, on the production and transportation, we have seen an increase, which means that storage, uh, be it on land or be it on uh, uh, on uh, different ships, um, is uh, going to have an impact for the, the long term. Um, short term, it's very, very lucrative, but long term, we anticipate that some of that uh, oil, which is currently stored and not being consumed, will come back to the market and will reduce the demand for uh, transportation. Yeah, so it's clearly a balance, right? And, and we started the market off bullish in 2020 with, with IMO 2020 transitions. Then we got hit pretty hard with the coronavirus uh, issues uh, that, that brought us back down in, in accordance with the Chinese uh, Lunar New Year as well. So kind of a double whammy, right, with seasonality. And then uh, now we're getting a lift, right, with, with the oil price uh, war and, and dumping, if you will, from, from Saudi Arabia. Um, you mentioned that the longer term uh, market prospects begin uh, to be a little bit more challenged. Um, how do we think about that in the longer term? How does that offset? And is Euronav considering any sort of different approach to that, or is it going to be primarily uh, just continued spot market exposure? Well, there's a, there's a lot of elements uh, in what you're saying, but first and foremost, it's very important to understand that uh, the way Euronav is structured is very much to have a platform that can go throughout 
all cycles, be it short or long. Uh, I think we have a, a very strong balance sheet, a conservative leverage, a very decent liquidity position, uh, and nevertheless, a, a phenomenal uh, uh, upside operational leverage, i.e. when the market is, uh, is uh, rocking, we're benefiting uh, fully from that perspective. So we understand that we cannot predict uh, most of the events that are affecting the market. Uh, and so we have to look at the fundamentals. And the fundamentals, as we have uh, been saying for quite a long time, uh, are very good uh, for, for the market at the moment. It's simply because the supply side uh, seems to be very much contained with two uh, very important elements. The first one is that the order book is relatively limited for the years to come and should remain limited because uh, there is an uncertainty around the type of ship that people uh, can order. Uh, but also, on the older part of the fleet, we have now reached uh, some sort of um, a regular uh, number of ships, uh, around 30 to 40 ships that hit a key age profile, 17 and a half, 20, 22 and a half, uh, and which are very good candidates uh, to be scrapped uh, in case the market is showing some weakness. But of course, uh, that's maybe, you know, maybe the, the sort of macro picture in the background. Uh, the micro picture is that we are booking uh, voyages at phenomenal rates. I mean, we are talking about 150 to $250,000 uh, per day for voyages that will last anywhere between 50 and 90 days. So we're going to accumulate uh, a lot of cash. We're going to accumulate a lot of profits. And so even if at the, the back end of this very short cycle, because we understand it's a, it's a, it's a cycle uh, being brought to us by an oil price war, and we understand that it cannot last forever, well, at the back of it, there will be weaknesses. But compared to the profits we are, uh, we are getting at the moment, compared to the cash flows we are receiving, uh, it will be uh, nowhere near what we have accumulated uh, in the meantime. And so the longer the period uh, that we are currently going through last, the longer the period of pain will be, but at the same time, that pain will be limited in nature because you cannot uh, go below uh, zero uh, on, a, on, a, on the spot market. And quite frankly, in the tanker market, we have never gone below OPEX, which are around 10,000 uh, for, uh, for a full year. So we are not, we're not afraid and we are relatively happy of what we can do today uh, because uh, as an average uh, uh, in a combination to uh, what we can do tomorrow, it will still be very, very interesting for us. Yeah, no, thank you, Hugo, for really diving into that. And I, I think it's important to realize as we look at these rates and uh, the kind of the point you're making is, look, in just a month or two of these sort of earnings, uh, you can make several years, right, worth of normalized profits. So, you know, if rates are 150,000 for, you know, two, or three months if we can last that long i mean that'd be that'd be amazing if we do uh that is several years right worth of, of normalized profit so that's that's pretty incredible um you know i think investors are also a little cautious though that we're looking back to what happened last fall with the costco sanctions and when that happened last time you know the rate surged we saw these headlines of three hundred thousand dollars a day um, but then, you know, as more clarity came out about the Costco sanctions, I, I think over 50% of those fixtures ended up failing and, and the rates were still strong, right? They were still over 100,000, but they weren't the headline rates. And, and, and I think a lot of investors were kind of taken aback by that. Is this market surge different? Um, and if so, what, what are some of the differences between now versus last fall? The market is definitely different. Uh... Having said that, when you see $300,000 a day, um, you should never believe that it can last for uh, a very long period of time because obviously it adds to the cost of oil. Uh, and so on the delivered cost basis, uh, then the oil price is not that cheap and, and maybe uh, less interesting for people to buy, especially when you transport that oil over very long distances. So people get quite excited, but uh, I'm disappointed when they get disappointed by the fact that instead of 300,000, oh my God, it's only 150,000 now. Or break even are 28,000. So if you, if you want to give me 150,000 all day long, uh, I'll take that. Uh, and I will be a, a bigger believer in 150,000 for a month or two than uh, I'm a believer of 300,000 for a month or two. I think people people need to be a little bit cautious about the disappointment. 
Uh, yes, uh, some of those, uh, well, the majority of those uh, vessels were failed at 300,000, but looks, look at what was uh, truly fixed and look at the rate and the cash flow that it brought to uh, ship owners. I mean, it was nevertheless phenomenal. The last point that I want to say is that uh, if you are an investor in equity, and if you try to translate $300,000 a day, uh, then for Euronav, it means a share price at uh, well above $30. And that's not near where we were the last time. So when you translate the disappointment into, oh my God, this stock is not even worth what I'm paying for, uh, hang on a minute, because at $120,000, it's definitely worth a lot more than what it's trading today. Uh, to be very specific uh, on what's going on at the moment, this is not a rumor and this is not a um, uh, sort of uh, information that you need to check and analyze. At the moment, the Saudis have decided to open the taps and the Russians have decided to respond to that. There is a lot of oil being put on the market and that oil is being put on the market at relatively cheap cost. And when it comes to the Saudis, they were the one booking uh, most of the vessels last week because they didn't have enough in the in the barrier fleet. So all of that is tangible. All of that needs to be delivered. And that's why you saw the fixtures of Monday and Tuesday being confirmed before the end of the week. We are going through the fixtures being done on Thursday and Friday. Uh, it usually takes two to three days uh, after fixing. So we are currently seeing what is failing and what is uh, not failing. And I can tell you that as far as the pool is concerned, the vast majority is uh, being fixed uh, and they are uh, anticipating that the Saudis will come back with more cargoes uh, towards the back end of this week and next week, uh, as they have explained, uh, until the, the mid-April program, they will continue to try to export as much as possible. Yeah, uh, thank you, Hugo. First of all, for you know clarifying that even 100, 150,000 is just off the charts in terms of profitability and is nowhere near. I mean, the stock trades at a significant discount just to net asset value, which of course is based on long-term earnings and you know maybe the 30s or low 40s at best. So I mean, it's it's phenomenal earnings. So so thanks for clarifying that. And then I'm sure you have better color than I do. I you know I'm look, using uh, open market sources now, but yeah, we we saw about 50 fixtures last week, and of those 50. Um, I think all but two have either been fully confirmed. I think seven failed. So we had like an you know 85% success rate versus with Costco. I think it was like a 50% or less, or maybe 40% success rate. So we're already off to a far better, a far better role. We have 50 fixtures as opposed to about 30 or 40 with Costco and much higher success rate. Um, this week I, I've noticed, and of course I'm sure you have access to much better data than I do. Uh, I'm, I've only seen a handful of fixtures this week. Uh, you said you're, you're expecting more towards the, the back end of the week. Is that kind of what you're hearing as well in the markets? Indeed, that's what we're hearing uh, in the markets. I think that uh, the Saudis had uh, finished off their um, uh, March program uh, at the end of last week, maybe a few more cargoes uh, uh, yesterday, uh, but very limited. Uh, and they said they will start the April program uh, towards the back end of this week, early next. Uh, and that's where we anticipate to see, uh, again, a lot of activity in the market. It's also going to be interesting to monitor uh, whether, again, we see a wave of ships going to the U.S. or whether it's a little bit more disparate and, uh, and some of them going to the east, uh, uh, going to China in particular. Yeah, certainly, certainly very exciting times. So yeah, we, we, we had kind of a roller coaster ride so far in 2020, but overall rates have just been phenomenal. Uh, let's talk a little bit about IMO 2020. I mean, it's easy to lose sight uh, we're, uh, because of all the, you know, the, all the exciting markets, but it's easy to lose sight that we're in the midst of the largest maritime regulation shift in, in decades. Um, how is that progressing to date? And has Euronav changed uh, your strategy at all to, to comply with IMO 2020? It's a very good question. I mean, uh, let's not forget that IMO 2020 uh, was supposed to be extremely good for the markets because uh, there was a dislocation of uh, the, the crude oil trade flows. Uh, in other words, uh, the market had anticipated, and, and Euronav as well, uh, that the light uh, type of crude oil, the, the, the very sweet crude oil, uh, would be far more attractive to the market and it would go longer distance as we had identified uh, the least sophisticated refineries uh, at a distance from that uh, type of oil being produced. Um, that's not something that we've seen uh, since the beginning of the year. 
Uh, we've seen a little bit of that between the US and Europe, but, uh, but not to the Far East. And I think that everybody was taken by surprise uh, about the number of uh, more sophisticated refineries who could, only, who could not only process crude oil, but could also process uh, high sulfur fuel oil uh, or reprocesses into uh, low sulfur fuel oil. Uh, what it meant in, term, in terms of spread is that obviously uh, at the very beginning of that period, i.e. Uh, in the first few weeks of January, uh, we saw a, a spread that was quite phenomenal, uh, 350 from time to time, 400. But the spread quickly collapsed as the market was discovering that uh, there would be enough LSFO and uh, there was certainly no uh, oversupply of, of HSFO, uh, as I just explained uh, the reason why. Um, since then, the market has, has completely changed because now we are, we are talking about a, a crude oil price war. Uh, and obviously, at those rates, it becomes very expensive to export the light type of crude oil that you can find in the US or even in Brazil uh, and shift it to, uh, to those refineries that I mentioned. Uh, the amount of uh, additional uh, barrels that have been put on the market uh, are more heavier, uh, and so uh, at the moment the, the spread has completely collapsed. But again, uh, it could grow up again uh, because uh, the number of additional barrels on the market are more the heavy type, uh, and therefore more. Uh, we, we anticipate that they will uh, they will be the basic of uh, of the production of HSFO uh, rather than LSFO, but that remains to be seen. As far as our uh, strategies. Um, I think it's a strategy that uh, we are very happy about. If we had to do it again, we would do it again. Uh, and it played in, 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 several, um, in several periods. I mean, the first period is that we managed to avoid uh, the peak at uh, 350 $400 of spread, uh, as we had accumulated uh, um, enough LSFO material to uh, put it on our fleet and certainly on the larger tanker size, the VLCCs. Uh, so that we've completely uh, avoid this uh, this peak time, which would have been very expensive. And at the same time, that strategy allowed us to uh, to capture uh, in full uh, the very good markets that we had in November, December, and January. Uh, and to a certain extent, we continue to have as, as uh, we, uh, we do not have any uh, ships uh, going to the yards for retrofit. At the moment, uh, the material that half of it and at the moment the material that we have on board the Oceania uh, is overpriced compared to what we can find in the market and so we are buying from the market. The cost of storing the material is very limited. Uh, it is limited because uh, the ship on which uh, it is stored uh, is difficult to rent even in today's market uh, and so uh, uh, you are adding between 12 and 13 dollars per year uh, per ton of fuel oil uh, if you want to store it uh, for better days, better days being uh, when things go back to normal and uh, the LSFO price go, go back uh, to an elevated uh, level. So we're not suffering from a cash flow perspective, far from it. Very happy to have uh, had this buffer. Probably happy uh, when the next uh, uh, wave comes, i.e. the spread increases again. Uh, and then uh, we will use it as of when uh, we need it and very opportunistically. Uh, uh, and opportunistically from an economic perspective, of course. Yeah, thanks, Hugo, for, for diving into that. There's just a lot to kind of work through and, and unpack, I suppose. Uh, first of all, it seems like the strategy of not installing scrubbers and just hedging uh, with the stored fuel was, was very successful for you. Um, first of all, you got the benefit as um, VLSFO prices surged, right? You're able to burn your own cheaper fuel um, you didn't have any dry docks. You didn't miss any of that fall uh, 2019 surge. Uh, again, now uh, you're not losing any of the surge. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the the way you can source uh, VLSFO and stuff in this market, right? Because you've talked about how the prices have plummeted so fast and, and significantly um, that now prices are cheaper uh, than the fuel you've already stored. Um, is there any feasibility to, I suppose, buy uh, even more? Uh, bunker fuel at these, I guess, all-time record low prices and, and store some of that? Or is that kind of a risk you don't want to take? And then I guess, secondly, um, if that's a risk you don't want to take, uh, does it really matter, I suppose, if you uh, you know buy from third parties at cheaper prices or you just 
you know, burn the bunker fuel you already have. I mean, uh, economically speaking, it would be net net the same, right? Is it just maybe a way that it impacts your your line item accounting, or or how do you think about that? Uh, to answer the first part of your question, uh, I don't think that we are uh, um, sort of fuel oil traders, fuel oil uh, speculators. I think what we did was for a very specific reason, as we uh, anticipated. It was almost impossible not to see a spike uh, in the market uh, initially when you when you have a shift um, of uh, that magnitude, uh, and that shift happened overnight, which was probably a mistake in the regulation. Uh, it's almost impossible not to see a spike, so we wanted to be protected against that spike. I think the level at which we purchase uh, corresponds, roughly speaking, to uh, $45, $50 uh, of, uh, of oil per barrel. Um, and so we are we are pretty sure that we will see that again uh, in the next year or so. So we're not too worried about uh, what is uh, what is left on board. Um, buying today uh, at very cheap levels uh, would make us uh, speculate simply because uh, when you look at the structure of the market, uh, the spot market here I'm talking, when you fix your ship, you always take into account uh, the fuel that you're going to put on board and the price of, the, of that fuel that you're going to put on board. And that's how you uh, calculate your TC. And that's the basic calculation that any charter needs to do. So there is no reason to speculate. We are benefiting from uh, those low, uh, very low uh, LSFO price as everybody else in the market. And if tomorrow it goes back up, then it will go back up for everyone. Um, so I think we need to be uh, to be very careful uh, before trying to speculate of uh, how and when the market will go uh, back up. Uh, it is nevertheless true that we have learned a lot of lessons, and, and one of the lessons is that uh, when we're buying uh, LSFO or HSFO for that matter, uh, uh, that we don't need at the moment. Uh, in bulk, i.e. wholesale versus retail, um, you are uh, skipping a lot of intermediaries and therefore uh, receiving or potentially receiving a, a very nice discount. That's something that we continue to do and we are in the process of analyzing that. And that would capture already a very, very decent value without taking uh, a risk, an additional risk on, on speculating about the oil price and therefore the, the fuel oil price. Yeah, thanks, Hugo. I, yeah, I think it makes sense that you're not going to, uh, you know, try to start up a new business where you're, where you're speculating on bunker prices. And, you know, it could be very distracting very fast and, and also be a drag on working capital. So I, I think investors can, can appreciate that and, and understand that. And we'll just focus on the business of, of transporting oil. Um, you know, we're glad that things were hedged uh, last fall and, and, you know, we can move forward with that. Um, there was some recent headlines um, about your other ULCC uh, getting chartered for six months. Uh, kind of at a surprisingly low rate. I think it was reported in the press at 37,000. Um, can you talk a little bit about that deal? Was was that done before the recent uh, pickup or what were kind of the terms of that? And also, are you seeing any sort of requests for floating storage in your regular VLCCs and Suez Maxes or are the current spot rates uh, too high to support that storage? Yeah, it's a very good question. So yes, the deal was done uh, before the current surge, but uh, even if we had waited, uh, and, and God knows that nobody knew it was going to happen, uh, of course, uh, it would have been very difficult to uh, to fix it at so much higher level, and certainly not the levels that we're seeing on the on the VLCCs. Uh, it's simply a, a size that people are uh, not very keen to use, or not uh, they're not used to, to deal with that kind of science. So the number of players in the market is extremely limited. You're talking about maybe two or, or, or three of the big trading houses uh, and maybe one account in, uh, in China. So obviously we're not talking about a, a regular market and it, it's uh, never possible to compare it uh, to, uh, to the VLCC market. Um, this ship is, uh, as you know, a, a relatively old lady. Uh, and so getting a getting a rate, I mean, that kind of rate on a ship that has uh, barely no finance, very low OPEX, uh, and uh, and has been uh, used uh, as a storage at much lower rate in the past, uh, we're very happy about it. Um, as far as VLCCs are concerned, I think that, yes, there is a, there's a lot of demand for um, a six to seven, uh, potentially uh, eight month uh of um storage people don't really call it storage because now they've uh, <laughs> i would say, i i would say that they've been burned in the past and so they call it just a, a tc 
and they may use it for storage, but they also at a certain point in time will use the same sheet for trading. Uh, and that's important for them to have the flexibility. So let's call it um, just a regular uh, time charter uh, with the option to use it uh, as a storage. Uh, and we have seen a lot of activity there, um, certainly for the, the period that I mentioned, so anywhere between six and nine months, at very decent rates ranging from 70 to uh, uh, as high as uh, 90, but I think that the $90,000 per day failed. Uh, anyway, we have seen confirmation uh, for uh, a number of ships at 80. As far as Euronav is concerned, uh, we are primarily a, a spot operator, uh, and obviously uh, at the current rates, um, even one voyage would cover the same amount of money that you can book uh, on, the, on six months or almost. Nevertheless, given that we have a very, very large fleet uh, and that we are uh, sort of conservative people in our mentality, i.e., that when it's a, a very good rate that you're being offered for six months, like 80,000, uh, then uh, it's uh, too good to refuse and, and you book it. And that doesn't mean that you are decreasing so much your exposure to the spot market because you can only do a limited number of ships uh, at those rates. So we're not changing our strategy, but we're nevertheless uh, trying not to be the greediest people in the market. And so we have, uh, or we are currently uh, looking at, I, I believe, two or three uh, fixtures uh, for storage at those, le those levels. Storage or, or, or under TC contract. Excellent. No, thanks, thanks, Hugo, for diving into that one. And, and yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I mean, the storage economics are, are going to depend upon the, the curve of the contango. And, you know, right now we're seeing those sort of spreads four, five, six, seven dollars, which of course don't, you know, they don't support 150,000 a day, right? And you mentioned uh, 90 being the peak, maybe not confirmed, but uh, 70 to 80,000 there for three to six months. So, I mean, those are, those are significantly strong rates. I mean, we were at 30,000, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago. So those are very strong rates that we, we make sure we don't lose sight of that as investors. Um, but it's not the 150 or 200 or 240 or whatever we might be seeing in the spot market. Uh, certainly appreciate a, a balanced approach to that. Uh, one sort of, I guess, last question on the IMO 2020 topics and scrubbers and whatnot. Um, you recently picked up four resale vessels, about $93 million a piece. Uh, those did come along with scrubbers. Um, there are some headlines saying that, you know, you changed your strategy or whatnot. Um, can you just talk about, I, I guess, how those four vessels uh, fit into your fleet dynamics? And are you expecting to uh, add on any more resales in this market? Or is the fleet kind of where you want it for now? Well, another question there. I mean, first of all, um, if you want to buy modern tonnage, uh, you can only buy uh, tonnage with scrubber. So uh, it's not really a decision. You cannot ask the people to strip out the kit uh, out of the ship. Uh, and quite frankly, we have always uh, said and, and we're always uh, convinced that if we would have been uh, at the yard ordering a VLCC or, or a Suez Max for that matter, we would have put a scrubber on that ship. Uh, because the, the option of doing that was, you know, in the range of one and a half, maybe $2 million at the peak, uh, and it was nowhere near the cost of a retrofit, which means that having that option uh, was almost a no-brainer, because as I said, you, you knew that there was going to be a peak moment in the spread, uh, which we've seen, uh, and we also knew uh, that uh, no matter what happened, there will always be, be some differences between NSFO and HSFO. It was also also a completely different risk from an operational perspective because uh, uh, you know building new and retrofitting are two very different exercises. So um, for us, it, 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 we didn't buy those ships because they had scrubbers. We bought those ships because we liked them, and from a fleet perspective, um, they are very complementary to five other very modern Daewoo's that we have, which are not scrubber equipped, but everything else um, is uh, is uh, makes them sister ships. Um, as far as uh, uh, what we're seeing in the market right now, uh, there is a huge bit of a spread. I mean, people are again asking completely crazy numbers on the on the base uh, of uh, what we're seeing in the spot market. Uh, I think that here and now we are very disciplined uh, about what we can pay, um, and uh, and I think that we if we are above 100 million, then we don't believe it's worth it because we know that uh, yes, we are enjoying a very very uh, special period right now. As I said, we know that 
there will be uh, that will be followed by a period of, of, of probable weakness uh, because all the oil accumulated will need to be consumed. And maybe at that time will be uh, time for us to go back in the market as, as people may feel the pressure uh, and maybe uh, looking at uh, disposing of the vessels at, at a more uh, desirable price for Euronet. Certainly, certainly makes sense. Thanks for unpacking some of that. Yeah, you know, I almost hate to ask the question about, you know, if you're changing your scrubber policy based on four resales, but, you know, I, I, we're responding to right quotes we're seeing in the news media and stuff like that. And, and you know, you have to kind of, we had to kind of ask the question to get through it. So I appreciate you bearing with me on that one. Um, you know, looking at the, the rest of the market right now, um, you know, investors before have, have always seen these sorts of markets hit with a sort of a supply reswing right you get subsidies from china uh you know them sort of dumping their vessels back in the market uh you get speculative investors pouring in uh with with their capital um do, are there any indications of, of any sort of supply concerns in this market are, are you think investors are going to come back to the table or that china is going to start trying to dump ships again on the market or, or do you think it's a, it's a different situation this time around um, I, I would have never characterized Chinese um, owners to dump ship on the market. In fact, uh, that's something that they have done uh, relatively successfully on other segments of shipping, in particular the dry boat. Uh, because when you look at the freight uh, of, on the dry side, uh, you have um, a huge interest in, in making sure that the market uh, remains oversupplied. And when it's not, that it doesn't go to crazy levels that uh, like ours. Um, the percentage that the freight represents compared to the cargo is just too big uh, uh, to afford a uh, phenomenal market as the one we're living on uh, in the tanker side. On the tanker side, uh, even when you have an oil price uh, at 40 or, or, or a little bit below that, or even between 30 and 40, uh, and you add the freight, uh, you are always, uh, on average, I mean, right now you are obviously more than 20, 25% of, uh, of the value of the cargo, but on average over a year, uh, you're never more than 10% and more, most often you are around 5%. And 5% is not enough for uh, Chinese capital to take a strategic view and to say, okay, let's go and build a number of ships so that the market uh, becomes oversupplied and, and stays uh, at uh, good rates forever um, as far as speculative uh, uh, investments are concerned uh, i think we will see uh, fewer of those and, and you know that at euronav we differentiate two types of speculators uh, the first one is really new money sort of uh, uh, capital markets money private equity money these kind of things uh, uh, supporting existing owner or or even creating new vehicles yeah, those guys we won't see them um, simply because they wouldn't know what to order. We are uh, at a point where everybody is wondering whether a conventional ship is uh, the right uh, type of ships to uh, to have for the next 20 years or LNG dual fuel ships or, or, or waiting another three or four years before the next technology uh, uh, starts to, uh, to be available in the market. And, and we should learn the lessons of the LNG seas so or the LNG carriers, which have seen dramatic shifts in uh, in propulsion technologies and, and obviously uh, every time you, you brought a new technology to the market the old one was uh, suffering uh, to a great deal uh, about it so i think that speculators in general are, are going to stay away for the time being and the uh, sort of traditional owners who tend to be a, a speculative uh, will also hesitate before ordering uh, the next generation of ships the, the shipyards are today still pricing uh, LNG dual fuel at uh, anywhere between uh, 13, 14, uh, sort of 18 million uh, premium uh, for the uh, dual fuel technology, uh, LNG. Um, that's a premium that you have no clue whether you're going to have a return on. And when you talk to uh, the oil majors that could sign a time charter on that, uh, and God knows that we have we have done that exercise and we've tried to do that. Uh, they are very reluctant to compensate you for that, or, or at least to compensate you in full. Uh, and that means that even uh, even people like Euronav are staying away uh, from the yards at the moment.
what's going to happen, uh, what is likely to happen is that the yards will continue to uh, have very little orders and at some point it will reach a, a point of desperation uh, and they will probably reduce their pricing uh, either to keep the workforce uh, busy uh, and therefore making a loss or simply because that technology is nevertheless uh, being applied to smaller ships, is being applied to uh, container ships uh, and obviously to some other segments like uh, cruise ships. Uh, and so the technology is, uh, the, the cost of the technology reduces over time uh, and we reach a point where it suddenly becomes interesting, but uh, that's not in sight uh, right now. Yeah, so certainly something to watch to, to see where that, that LNG cost curve comes down for, for engines. And of course, that could be, as you mentioned, the next uh, wave of, of supply growth. But it sounds like it's it's still, you know, maybe even several years out. So it'll be it'll be something for us to watch. But it is good to know that there's not any speculative capital flooding the markets. And of course, you know, in this day and age, this market, it's impossible to raise any sort of equity uh, at all um, and, and probably even to find bank financing. So I, I think that'll probably... Uh, help keep that supply down. I mean, it's a totally different market than than what we saw in, in the in the previous few years in terms of availability of capital. Um, speaking of you know availability of capital and equity and, and that sort of stuff, let's talk about your capital allocation strategy. Um, has that changed at all with the recent coronavirus and now the oil price war? Um, I know you started a new dividend policy that's going to be quarterly. Um, can investors expect uh, that quarterly dividend to remain the same? And, and also, let's talk about share repurchases. How did those factor into your considerations today, uh, considering the stock is at a significant discount to net asset value currently? Well, all very good points. If you, um, if you read, uh, if you take the time to read our return to shareholders policy, uh, because I think it's worth it because we've, we spend a lot of time thinking about it and we wanted to build something that was uh, flexible enough and nevertheless, uh, would uh, commit ourselves to, to do uh, something from a percentage of uh, the PNL uh, point of view. So what we said is that we target 80% of the, the PNL, and God knows the PNL was good in Q4. It's fantastic in Q1, uh, and it now looks to be uh, uh, very good, maybe better than uh, than, than Q1 for for or Q2. So there's, uh, as I said, a lot of returns. Uh, that uh, that will flow back to the investors. Now, the 80% is um, between share buyback and dividends. Um, we understand that uh, there's a lot of people out there, a lot of our shareholders that are still adamant uh, about dividends, even though from time to time, um, I feel that share buyback is creating more value. And so what we have said is that at least half of the, uh, the 80% is gonna be uh, in form of, uh, of dividends. Uh, and the other half will be either dividends or, or share buyback. Uh, I agree with you that uh, today you see a, a share price uh, weakness, you see a big discount to NAV, uh, and the reason why we have not uh, bought back anything yet is simply because we need to be very disciplined about it. If every time we see a weakness, and certainly in, uh, when capital markets are extremely volatile, uh, we uh, the market expects us to do buyback, today we won't, do a buyback, then they will start wondering why are we not buying back immediately. And you will remember that because we are a Belgian company, we need to declare that within five uh, business days. So people see immediately what we're doing. Uh, we cannot hide until the end of the quarter. Um, and that's very important because very often uh, we are in close period. We are in close period because 30 days prior to uh, releasing our numbers, we are in close period. We're also in close period because uh, we are constantly uh, trying to uh, bring good deals to uh, the platform. Uh, and obviously, if you're in negotiation with someone, then it means that you have inside information and you cannot buy back your shares. So um, it's very overreact and, and do that uh, very quickly. Uh, but uh, over the longer uh, term, uh, it may backfire. And that's why uh, in our in our uh, explanation of how we apply the policy, we have always said that we want to see weakness in the share price uh, for a certain period of time before we intervene. Uh, it's uh, now very easy to understand that uh, if uh, if we see that weakness uh, being permanent and, and, and going to the uh, early part of the summer, uh, you can definitely expect us to intervene and definitely expect to uh, use. Uh, a big chunk of that 80% return to shareholders in the form of share buyback, as just explained. 
Hugo, thanks about, uh, first of all, thanks for, for clarifying the 80% uh, of course is a mixture between repurchases and, and dividends. And of course, uh, you, you could go slightly above if you wanted to. I, I think you've done that in the past, but but thanks for, for clarifying that policy. Um, yeah, we you know we saw the share price uh, come off significantly in January, starting in mid-January on seasonality. I think investors were tracking that. And then of course we had the coronavirus, uh, which brought us down to uh, you know, basically closer to your 52-week lows. I think you hit like the mid eights. Um, you've mentioned that you don't want to repurchase because uh, too fast, uh, because you don't want to set a precedent, um, right? But I mean, and and perhaps that was understandable when rates were falling, right? But now we have you know the oil price war. Uh, we we have rates are surging. They are f phenomenal, right? They're even better than they were last fall. And yet your stock price is still at a significant discount, right? It's it's uh, it was about 9.50 yesterday. I, we'll have to see how the market opens, but it looks like it's going to be another really rough day. Um, you know, at what point um, do you do you shift tack there? And and I guess related to that, um, and I, I'm going to press you a little bit on this one, Hugo, because you know just from the point of an investor here, um, how do you differentiate between you know buying resale vessels right at 100% NAV? And I'm not saying the resale vessels are bad. Um, I actually really like those vessels you bought, but those are at 100% NAV, right? Or maybe you could say 95% versus buying shares at 65, 70, 75% NAV. Yeah, uh, Jeremy, first clarification on my earlier point. So uh, as I said uh, very specifically, when we are within 30 days of announcing uh, results, and, and that's the period in which we are today, uh, we can anyway not buy back. So uh, even if we wanted to, uh, we could not do that at the very present time. Uh, and I was mentioning that because it's important for investors to understand that we cannot buy back at any time of our choosing. Uh, there are periods where there will be restrictions uh, due to the regulators. Um, on, on choosing uh, between tonnage uh, and, uh, and, and share, uh, I think that given the, the capacity that we have, um, the leverage, which is probably a little bit lower than uh, where we want it to be, the amount of liquidity that we have, uh, the, uh, the, the the very strong cash flow that we are receiving. Um, I don't think we have to choose between uh, buying a resale of contract uh, and buying back our stock. I think we can do all paying dividend for that matter. Uh, I think we can do a, a combination of uh, those three. Obviously, your 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 horizon is not at all the same when you're buying a resale. Uh, you probably uh, end up with a ship that you're going to trade for at least 15 years out of its 20-year lifetime. Uh, when you're buying your stock, it, it's obviously a, at a certain point in time uh, because it's marked to uh, uh, add a discount to a, an NAV which has its own volatility. Uh, but again, we're not choosing one from the other and God knows that the uh, three ships, the four ships that we have purchased uh, in the last month uh, are not preventing us at all from uh, deviating from our uh, dividend policy, which is uh, returning 80% of our earnings. Yeah, Hugo, I, I appreciate you clarifying a little bit on that point. Uh, just two final technicalities to clean up, and, and this is a very you know important, I, I've received, I don't know, probably 20 emails from investors asking about you know Euronav and repurchases and, and nuances therein. Two questions, so first of all, um, can you clarify just a 30-day rule? Is that 30 days from the end of the quarter or 30 days from results? And I'm asking that because it looks like on your website you say results are going to be 7 May of uh, 2020. So that would seem like you could repurchase until uh, 7 April if it was until results. If it's until the end of the quarter, right, it seems very restrictive, but just looking for clarification. And then second of all, there was an issue with your annual meeting. Uh, where you had requested additional authority to repurchase stock, and it seems like the shareholders voted that down. And, and I know that's that's coming back up on the docket again. Uh, can you just explain what that uh, shareholder votes about and and how folks can uh, wrap their heads around that one? Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, um, there, there are there are different things. Um, our final results for the year 2019 are due at the end of the month. Uh, not in May. So what is due in May is uh, sort of the uh, the accounts fully audited that will have to be voted upon by the AGM. Uh, and I know it's a little bit cumbersome, but that, that obviously doesn't block us from doing anything. So uh, we are in a close period until the end of, until the end of this month. Um, as far as the uh, share repurchase, yes, it's true that we need to ask authority. 
uh, at the moment we still uh, have authority to uh, to buy back in addition to what we have done last year uh, by the way and we have in anticipation of uh, um, uh, because that that's an authorization that you get for i believe two years maybe three years and so in anticipation of coming to uh, to the end of that program uh, we have asked again uh, for another 20 percent uh, potential uh, buyback option uh, it is very disappointing very disappointing to see that uh, the agencies uh, do not understand the, the value that can be created with share repurchase and are always voting down this kind of request um, and, and but uh, but having said that and having discussed with them uh, they would be keen to vote positively on 10 percent it is something that I don't understand, and, and for all the investors that are out there, uh, I would strongly, strongly advise them not to follow the advice of those agencies. Uh, it may be, uh, uh, you know, for certain reasons that they think in that way, but then they are uh, probably lacking the understanding of our market, which is very volatile and very cyclical. So maybe in a growth industry, uh, it's something that, uh, that you don't want management to do. Uh, but I think that in our markets, you can create significant value when you have the flexibility of, uh, of applying uh, your your cash flow to, to dividends and or to a share buyback. You should have a lot more freedom there, uh, as I truly believe that we could create a lot more uh, value for our investors. So um, in, in short, uh, and unfortunately, too many people are voting their shares, uh, not looking at uh, the agenda we put out and the request that we're putting out, and are just trusting the agency to be... Uh, to be good at uh, uh, on those votes and, and unfortunately the reality is totally different and when we ask 20 percent they say no and, and now we have to try 10 percent and hopefully they will say yes yeah yeah thank you hugo so you, you said 10 percent was the limit um can you confirm uh, you know how that would restrict you going forward is that refresh each year or is that still a 10 percent stuck from i suppose a year ago and then just one final clarification i i think the the quiet period for your rules is, sounds a little bit different i think than most u.s companies so you're telling me that you're in a quiet period because you haven't announced your full 2019 results even though you've given interim results so the way i understand that is the end of march basically one more week 31 march you're going to report the final year 2019 and then once you've done that uh then you could repurchase theoretically starting in early april did, did i understand that correctly yeah so we understood it uh correctly uh and that's from a reporting point of view and the the thing is that when we report our preliminary numbers what we're doing is that we are, we're buying uh we're buying sort of a month's time because we report at the end of january and then we can do whatever we want during february and then we stop at the end of february until the end of march and that's the reason why we report preliminary but preliminaries are, are not audited numbers uh not that they differ so much from one another but from time to time you have the accountants that are telling you to book something usually has no uh no impact uh on uh, on the numbers just the way we book them um so yes it's uh it's might it might be a little bit different than in the us but in the us um i suppose that the rule would be the same if people uh, were going with preliminary numbers uh, it's just something that is very specific to Euronab, and we don't have to do that we're doing that just because we want to buy more flexibility and we we want to come out to the market with uh, as quickly as possible with our numbers uh, we believe it's a good thing in a volatile number in a volatile market sorry to do that um as far as the us is concerned because the numbers are then public on the on the EU side, if I can call it that way, uh, then obviously they are considered public numbers on the US side, and so uh, any US uh, restrictions, i.e. linked to the 20F or, or something like that, is waived, because anyway, the material is out there. Uh, so it has no impact. But remember, uh, and that's very important, that's why I insist on, uh, if we are in the middle of a transaction, uh, that is material of course not selling one vessel or buying one vessel uh, but if we are in the middle of a transaction of uh, you know buying several ships or, or selling uh, several ships maybe in a sale and lease back uh, and uh, our compliance officer considers that uh, material then of course we cannot uh, we have to restrict ourselves from buying uh, shares so i'm saying that because i don't want people uh, to watch your nav and then judge them on not doing something uh, as they, they probably don't have the full picture. I mean, I think we have demonstrated over the years that uh, we can create significant value, that we are very disciplined about the amount of capital we return to the market. 
you pointed out that whenever we breach our policy, it's on the high side, I, we go above 80%. Um, so I, I don't think that people can blame us from uh, what we have done and the actions we have taken in the past, and we'll continue to, to do our best to create as much value as we can for our shareholders. Yeah, no, thank, thank you, Hugo. I, I appreciate you clarifying some of those points. And it, it's just been one of the bigger um, concerns for investors because we see that rates are surging, but shares are falling back. And then there's this tendency for everybody to get hyper conservative and, and not take advantage of the situation. And, you know, we see Euronav with excessive liquidity and a strong balance sheet. And, and, and it was a little bit of a frustrating, I think, disconnect there. But I think it sounds like we've worked through and, and, and talk through some of the more nuances kind of behind the scenes there. So we're looking forward to April and, and seeing what the market will bring us. You know, hopefully the surging rates will continue and, you know, hopefully the stock will respond on its own. But if not, we, you know, we hope you'll get back into the market. Um, we're coming up on our on our time here, Hugo. It's been great to host you. I just wanted to do one final clarification and, and follow up for you. Uh, looking at your current leverage and balance sheet in your previous uh, investor calls and, and conference calls, report uh, quarterly reports, uh, you mentioned that your leverage was, you know, right where you wanted it. Basically, that if anything, you could accept a higher leverage. Um, is that still true, or is there a, more of a desire to pay down debt in this market? Uh absolutely not i mean as far as the debt is concerned debt profile maturities uh the structure of the debt uh, i.e uh, bonds bank debt paper uh, we're 100 percent happy about it if anything uh we we may grab uh, more opportunities as we did uh on the last four uh where we we obviously didn't issue any equity and, and we are very happy to to increase uh, marginally the leverage, uh, and that's that's why it's there for. But paying down debt uh, outside the regular schedule is uh, completely out of question at this point in time. Uh, we have uh, we have uh, a very or super strong balance sheet, super strong liquidity position, so that I can definitely rule out. Yeah, that, that's uh, fantastic to hear, Hugo. I think you're one of the only stocks in the energy space, one of the only companies in the energy space uh, where you do not need to focus on your leverage. Your leverage, if anything, is, as you mentioned, if anything, it might be too low. Um, so there's just so many opportunities to uh, ideally repurchase stock here or you know, take advantage of cheaper assets. So I uh, definitely applaud you uh, for your steady stewardship. I know you were CFO uh, for many years, right before you took over as CEO last year. Um, so I applaud you on that steady leadership and, and cleaning up that balance sheet. Um, so yeah, Hugo, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I think this was a very productive call. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, hosting us and, uh, and anytime. We enjoyed it and we think that it's a great opportunity to inform better the markets on uh, those questions. And just to come back on one of your comments that uh, you apologize for asking me questions about the, uh, the Skerber. Uh, if that's the question you're receiving from your investors, it's important for us to answer them. So uh, never be ashamed of asking any question. We are ready to answer them. Very much appreciate it, Hugo. And uh, that's why Euronav is, is one of the best in the space. All right. Thanks again for joining us. Everyone uh, on the call, this concludes our live chat with Euronav, a recording live on the morning of 18 March 2020. I have no current position in stock of Euronav. However, that may change in the future. Nothing you heard on the call today constitutes official investment advice and or official company guidance from your app.